the boy went, what are you going to do about it, gay boy? And that was the first time my sexuality had ever been sort of brought up in that sense. James Rogers, firefighter and LGBTQ activist and advocate. And so we ended up having a little scrap. None of us got hurt. <laughs> I had him on the floor and I said to him, <laughs> <laughs> I said, cancel your taxi and call an ambulance because that's the only way you're getting home. Like you've managed to pass through training school and we've got you and you're going to be a retained firefighter in Berkshire. And so being able to tell my mum that before um, she passed was really amazing, actually, because it's like it's shaped a lot of my future now. Find your self-worth. If you can be out, if you can be open and be queer and be LGBTQ+, however you're comfortable with identifying, there's a massive power in just literally being open with it. Just before we jump into the podcast, can I ask for two massive favours from you guys? The first one being, if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to click that subscribe button. The more listeners, the bigger guests I can get on the podcast to kind of share their stories and break the stigma. And the second favour being, if you're watching this on YouTube, over 89% of you guys have not clicked that subscribe button. So if you are enjoying the podcast, make sure to click that subscribe button. Honestly, it means the world to me and honestly, I appreciate all your support. Let's jump back into the podcast. James, absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I mean, we tried this yesterday, but one of the microphones wasn't working. So, I mean, you're lovely flat. So yeah, thank you for having me over. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. I mean, this is my second attempt at my first ever podcast. So I bet you feel a lot more relaxed now, I imagine. I, absolutely. It's nice to be in my home space, especially, um, and also to run through it yesterday. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, such a nice space as well. Like your flat is absolutely stunning. Like... I mean, I prefer. I actually prefer going to the yeses' home sometimes. I think they feel more relaxed as well. And like, if you can get someone more relaxing, you obviously you just get a better podcaster. I imagine that. Yeah, because I've only lived here for like five weeks now, but I've really settled in. Like, I've brought some furniture with me, so it's made it feel a lot more like home. And yeah, loving it. It's beautiful. And before Welcome. here, you was in Reading. Yeah, so I'm from Reading originally. Like the countryside nearby, this little village called Ruscombe. Um, it's near Twyford and I went to school in Wargrave and then college in Henley. So kind of Reading, but kind of a bit more of a more like a sort of a pocket that may be a, like a bit more sheltered than Reading. Because I think Reading is actually the most diverse town in um, in the UK outside of London. Do you mean and in terms so, of white nationalities? Yeah, and yeah. that's why they do, um, that's why Reading's got loads of different fast food chains because it echoes London. Mm. They can see how people would respond to the fast food chain. Yeah. So it's good for growing up for food. Definitely. It's, it's quite easy to get into London as well, isn't it, from Reading? Yeah, I used to commute. So now I work in London. My commute from here, I'm in North London, takes me about half an hour. But from uh, Twyford, if I got the fast train in the morning, I'd get there in an hour. So yeah, it's not too bad. Then, not yeah. too bad at all. Well, we jumped straight into it, but I'd love to introduce you to the listeners. So obviously you're a firefighter, massive advocate to LGBTQ, obviously community. But could you do like a little introduction to the listeners? So my name is James Rogers. I am a firefighter and I do a lot of LGBTQ plus activism within the fire service and beyond, um, basically to raise awareness and speak about queer people who work in the public services. We met at like a Richard Green workshop. For anyone who's not aware of Richard Green, he's like a massive public speaker, he's on Princess Diana, some absolutely massive people. 
and we met at the at the workshop and your story was absolutely incredible so obviously afterwards like i was like come on the podcast so <laughs> i'm so excited to get on i mean how was your experience at the richard green workshop um i think my experience was i was just having one of those days like you know when you get to like the traffic lights and they turn green or you get to the tube and it just arrives and all of those sort of things and so I was just lucky. Um, I got really good feedback, um, but I honestly didn't really know what I did to like make it so empowering because I was just speaking my truth. And yeah, it was it was a really lovely experience. Um, I learned a lot, um, but I don't really know. I don't really know sort of what I took from it. Because obviously you had like, not like a script, but you have your notes of what you wanted to say and like it was so well written. But I think when you moved away from that and I think Richard kind of like was like get away from the podium and just speak from the heart I think that's when it just like really like hit a nerve and resonated with people and there was a person on the front row like I remember being in tears so yeah it was really powerful yeah that's the, um, I think that's the thing actually funnily enough I sort of picked up a lot of the speech that I um, spoke with Richard um, from this event that I had done in the fire service but then I changed a few bits and I actually wrote a few bits in the waiting room before we were meant to go in. Yeah. So I could have been a bit nervous because I only wrote some of it about 20 minutes. Everyone was so sound as well because I remember like getting there, I was like, oh God, what the people are going to be like? And everyone was like summer ages from all different backgrounds. I think Danny Rahim, who I've had on the podcast, obviously he spoke about mental health. And then I remember one guy was doing like a best man speech. So it was such a, a bag and a mixture of like all sorts of people. And I think it's so important. I think speaking is so important and it kind of is not necessarily an art form that is being lost, but in the days with like media and TikTok, people can rehearse, people can sort of decide what they put out into the world and to then be able to go up and actually speak and then may have to change things in the moment. You may sort of fluff it up and stuff like that. I think it's definitely a talent. And you mean you do this podcast and it's kind of the same thing, whereas I'm here like, oh God, no, you're <laughs> I hope great. I get the I right mean, things. <laughs> honestly, like, I used to be so nervous. I still am now. Like, it's always good to have like a bit of nerves going into a podcast. It obviously just means like you care and you want to do a good one, but like when I started again this year, it's like starting from scratch again and like trying to learn to speak to people. And they always say like, oh my God, I'm never going to get an hour out of this person. But you always do and like you, you get chatting. But I always find the start is is always the hardest. Like, And someone said it's like warming up your vocals. It's like a singer going on stage. You don't want to like jump straight no, into it. No, not yeah, at yeah. all. Yeah. Maybe one day, maybe I'll do a world tour one day. And yeah, be it could be you doing a podcast one day. Like, yeah. <laughs> but no, I'll keep it for this for now. But yeah. thank you for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. If we kind of, with the guests, I always kind of go back to them early years of like their childhood. Because I think it always makes, when you kind of, what like Steve Jobs said once, if you look back at the dots and connect the dots, you can kind of see your journey of where you've been on to where you are today and like, even my personal experience, like if I didn't have an allergy, then I probably would never have this podcast right now. So if we go back to some ill years, what are them ill years like for yourself, James? Oh gosh, I mean, my life has always been a mixed bag. Um, so I'm an identical twin. I'm gay, he's straight. I'm mixed race. Uh, my mum's black, Spanish, um, Jamaican. And my dad is like typical old like white ginger all of that so completely How them guys me i really want to ask <laughs> this met, question the other day they met on a bus in india um wow. yeah so my dad was sat by the window seat and my mum had booked the seat and she walked up and she was like you're sat in my seat because she wanted to sit by the window to have the view and he was like okay whatever 
moved up. They sat next to each other on a bus journey and um, here I am 26 years later. It's insane, so, isn't it? Like, so yeah. you never got on that bus on that same day. Like. Literally, it's Are crazy. They from very, obviously, like you, you mentioned your mum was like black Jamaican and your dad's like white and ginger. I mean, very different backgrounds. I mean, did you take away from it from both of them? Absolutely. I mean... My relationship with my dad is um, very chaotic, whereas my relationship with my mum was absolutely amazing. Um, but it's not to say that they didn't both have positive impacts on me. Um, and then my family on my dad's side are very close and very well informed. My granddad's a um, professor at Oxford University and he's always been very liberal, very open-minded, still very wise and worldly at the same time. So I've I've had definitely some great male role models in my life and he would absolutely be up there as the number one. And then for my mum, who was the sort of main caregiver for our upbringing, she was incredibly down to earth. She was such a matriarch, not just for our family, but for all of our friends. I really, when she um, passed away, she was in hospital uh, in, in palliative care for a week and so many people came to see her that she had to be moved from the general ward into her own p- private room. Wow. And the nurses, I remember asking them if, um, asking us, sorry, if she was famous because so many people had come to see her. And I think that kind of, for me, was like, it represented not only her and how much she had done for like other people, but also like how amazing of a woman she is like for me and all of this. And so... Yeah, I'm lucky to have her blood running through me. I'm lucky to have had the 20 years that I did with her because as much as it's obviously sad that she's no longer here, I'm inspired by her every single day. So, so she's touched good. so many people's lives. Absolutely. And now I've got the pressure of carrying on that bloodline yeah. and I'm like, damn, will I ever be as good as her? But And no. she, she had, was it leukemia? Yeah, so she got diagnosed with T-cell LGL lymphatic leukemia, which is a mutation of Lyme's disease. And so it's incredibly rare. I think at the time of her diagnosis, only four people had it. It's because she got bitten by a tick when we were on a camping holiday in Wales. She developed Lyme disease that then developed into leukemia. And so it was all the whole, the years, the eight years that she was um, diagnosed with it um, was such a sort of blur because it obviously is incredibly sad, but um, when you get told that your life is, you are going to die, that you have limited time left. One thing that I definitely learned from her is, and I know it's cliche, but it's so true, is um, be true to yourself and live every day as if it's your last. And she had to do that authentically. She had to literally do that because she didn't know what was going to happen. She was very susceptible to illnesses. A lot of people with cancers and leukemia are. And so we could be fine and then she could pick up a cold from someone on a tube or something. And that really could be sort of the end of all of it. It must um, be quite like going through them eight years as well. It must be quite scary. Like when there's not like a, a date, you know what I mean? Like you say, like every live every day. Absolutely. Like such, yeah. I think the thing is though, she's like every mum. She's so good at concealing and only showing us kids what we wanted to see. And so we got all the best of her. We got the amazing mum moments, the things that she would make deliberately nice and deliberately sort of like, I remember, for example, she watched this TV program called Versailles, obviously about Versailles. And she was like, I want to go there. 
And because there's no time to waste, that next weekend, I remember cleaning up her car for her and she drove off with her best mate. I got to have an amazing house party. But it's just that sort of spontaneity that we grew up with. And that's sort I think of... that's moved on to your life now in, in regards to, like you say, being open and living every day and being yourself and authentic. I think absolutely. I mean, we all learn a lot from our parents and I'm incredibly lucky to have had an amazing mum. And I've learned a lot about about myself through the way that she behaved and about being unapologetic, about being authentic and just about keeping sort of like just being real, just being true to yourself. I know I'm repeating it, but it's like when you have when you've grown up and there is a timeline on everything, you literally have no other choice but to live. And so that's why I like to do the activism. That's why I like to do all this work, because I've learned to love myself. I mean, it's still ongoing, but I can share a lot of what I learned and a lot of what I picked up as a child through her and do that through advocating for the LGBTQ plus community. Because at the moment, people who share sort of, who are part of the queer world that I'm from are persecuted. They are still scared. I mean, trans people have incredibly marginalized in the media and society. The suicide rate of gay men is four times higher than straight men and it's just like situations like that where you can't live your authentic truth whereas I've grown up in a society where in a family where I've been able to and through my friends where I've been able to to then be in spaces where that's not necessarily celebrated and that's not necessarily brought out sparks this sort of energy in me where I'm like that needs to change so yeah I would say she's a huge inspiration for um a lot of what I do even subconsciously you mentioned there um gay men are four times more likely gonna take their own life compared to a straight man is it obviously like them being marginalized and, and feeling yeah. not having that support like yeah that was a statistic from a Guardian article where I was reading the other day about this um it's about this, um, I guess, sort of writer and doctor called Alan Downs. And he's um, written this book called The Velvet Rage. And basically, it's about the internalised homophobia and the internalised pressures that a lot of um, gay men, specifically gay men, put on themselves in order to validate themselves. So um, because we're from a society where it can be seen as a weakness, whereas where it is, there's a sort of jeopardy with being queer. A lot of gay men tend to then overexert themselves, overapply themselves and try and work their way up the ladders at work or in the gym or so on and so forth in order to basically sort of validate their, in like their sort of self-hatred mm. because um, of what, they need to unlearn about being gay. So, would you say that's something you experienced when you were younger? Then, them kind of internal pressures. I think just like anyone, we've all experienced internal pressures. But yeah, I think being gay, um, there's a lot on top of it because even things like being in the changing rooms at, at training or something like that, you're like, oh, especially as a young child and when you're first coming out and everyone has these opinions you're like okay if I just get in here and get out and then I'll, I'll go shower back at home and stuff like that or um at school and for example um if you I don't know like made a mistake or whatever 
it's like you kind of feel like oh god that's the gay guy who made that mistake that's the gay guy who made that issue rather than being generalized so you feel like into you've it kind of all. got that label when you, you shouldn't yeah. do yeah, yeah definitely it's um i think it's just the sort of uh, people like to group people together people like to generalize a lot and so it's like if you could be i don't know for example in the fire service if you were a uh, a female firefighter and you've been driving for years perfectly it's fine but then the second you might knock the truck ever so slightly there could be the whole internal like oh not these women drivers all of that mm-hmm. stuff and then you're thinking about how you represent all women in the fire service and so on and so it's that sort of similar it's like having the whole like world on your shoulder at times imagine if you feel like you know you say representing the community and you feel like you don't want to let people down so it's always having that ongoing kind of inner thought but also the pressures around that yeah absolutely but that's why gay men can also be incredibly successful yeah. as well because yeah. they have had to apply themselves and they have had to sort of deal with that i mean if you look at like pop stars like Elton John or Freddie Mercury or um, not Harry Styles <laughs> but like gay icons for example it's like they didn't get there through sort of following the rules they didn't get there through sort of going down the bullet points of what it takes in order to achieve that status or that I don't know like that sort of musical capability and half of it is being able to well in my opinion half of it is them being able to authentically be themselves and show off the world but then another part of it can also be because they feel that extra pressure to over, to succeed so, so just like a lot by, of gay yeah. men do i mean what age did did you feel like oh like because i think as, as you get older you kind of question it definitely in your teens like i'm a straight i'm a gay like what age was that was that for you where you start kind of questioning your sexuality see I had a very interesting relationship with my sexuality because I wouldn't necessarily, um, I would describe myself as gay, but I would, I use the term queer a lot more, but I'll speak about that later. Um, But for me, I came out when I was 18. Um, I didn't really know I was gay. I just knew that I wasn't straight. But I was um, at parties, I would like make out with girls and stuff like that. And like it would have a lovely time, but there was never that like spark. If yeah. you know what I mean? There was never that like... That kind of like butterflies yeah, in the stomach. Exactly. Kind of feeling, and yeah. I just thought everyone overhyped. Like yeah. not necessarily girls, but like just overhyped all of that and everything going on with it all. And it's so quite interesting just, that as well. Like, you know what I mean? Like you kiss someone, you're like, oh, like this, is this it? Like, why is everyone like banging on about it kind of thing? Like, <laughs> And then the second I kissed a guy for the first time, it was behind a tree at my friend's 18th birthday party. And I remember getting those like little tingles like in the back of my head. And I was just like, oh, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> my God, <laughs> yeah. this is what it's going to be then. Um, and I ran, it was a big garden and I ran from behind the tree and I ran back to the barn where the party was. <laughs> and I was like back like, that didn't happen. This is all good. This is all fine. Yeah. Um, but then I'm pretty sure I found them later and we like snogged for ages behind the yeah, tree yeah. again. But you tell all your friends that night. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. I kept it a secret. Oh, really? I was, um, I was very nervous. I grew up in a very conservative area and although he was out and he was gay and he was very loved, he'd been out for a long time and he was best friends with the host of the party and was from a different group from my school and my boys okay. and all of that. And I always fit in with them. But I always felt a bit sort of 
misplaced. Um, like we all got on, but there was certainly just a bit of, I don't know, kind of, I always felt like an observer rather than someone who was partaking. And so, um, yeah, that's why I think the community is so important because when I did find my group of people and my community, that's when you realize the sort of power of friendships and relationships and stuff like that. Has your friends changed a lot then? Have you still got friends from your kind of school school days? Yeah, I mean, my friends have changed just as my life has changed. Yeah. I've luckily, like with social media and everything, like we've still been able to keep in contact. We've still got a big group chat. I mean, a lot of the times it's used for sort of happy birthdays and letting people know that they're back in the home area. But um, no, I've always been very lucky. My mum used to work at the school. So um, I got in with the cool kids when I was very, very young yeah. because... I got to, <laughs> um, well, Mrs. Rogers was the secretary. So, um, yeah, it was always good. And my friends were always supportive. Um, there was never really direct homophobia, um, but there was a lot of prejudice. There was a lot of misunderstanding and people certainly were homophobic, but I didn't come out till I was 18. And so I kind of just... What uh, was that moment, if we go back to obviously that moment of like telling like your, your family and like your, your twin brother, yeah. how was that kind of experience? So I have a very dramatic coming out story. It <laughs> all started again. This was probably sort of further down line. It was my friend's birthday party and my friend um, had just been dating one of the guys in the group and they had broken up and she had her car parked around the front of this house and so one of the guys who the guy had broken up with her was like, okay, I want to basically go and wee on this girl's car yeah. um, to be like, I don't care about you, all of this. And the girl at the time was one of my very good friends. And so I thought I'd go over and stop all the boys from weeing on her car. And I got around to the front of the house and they were all there. And I basically, I told them to stop. And the boy went, what are you going to do about it, gay boy? And that was the first time my sexuality had ever been sort of brought up in that sense, because as far as they were aware- How did that make you feel in that moment when he when he said that? Obviously that's the first time you've experienced homophobia. Yeah, well, when I first, when I heard it- like Shots, <laughs> I yeah. was It was a combination of shock and I didn't find it funny. Looking back, I, it's very funny, but at the time I was a bit like, oh, <laughs> you really went there. So that's when I thought, okay, well, this is, this is gonna, I didn't want it to escalate, but at the same time, this, I need to hold my ground. I need to be myself here and I need to not take any shit basically. Mm. Um, and so we ended up having a little scrap. None of us got hurt. And um, <laughs> I had him on the floor and I said to him, <laughs> <laughs> I said, Cancel your taxi and call an ambulance because that's the only way you're getting home. You just got beaten up by a gay boy. <laughs> I remember <laughs> some of the amazing, boys like... who, who, some of the boys. You who need were to get him. this like on a tote bag or a quote or do your like <laughs> brand. Maybe I need to make and tame with them quotes. And that, Literally, yeah. I remember one of the boys, like some of the boys, going, "Oh, like as in I really got him there." I mean, it was in jest, like it was boys being boys. Like he didn't hurt him, he didn't hurt me. It was like a really non-violent fight and actually the only fight I've ever had to this day with someone who's not my brother, obviously. Um, and so, yeah, then after that, I went home and I was a 
bowl of tears, like and a ball of tears, sorry, back at home. And I went on Twitter um, and I tweeted saying, you're all probably going to hear about last night's party and <laughs> the rumours are true. I am gay and all of this stuff. And my brother popped his head in and he um, told me he loved me. And that was that was all he said. But that's all he needed to say. I think mm-hmm. it's more of a conversation that we needed to have properly. Um and so yeah, that I just been really like nice on that. Like your brother, like he knew it's out there. Like supports you, still loves you con- unconditionally. Like. Yeah, my brother yeah. and I, because of obviously the life that we've had growing up together, with um, the ups and downs of it all. Now he's the only biological sort of immediate family I've got left. We have a really close relationship, and so. Yeah, it's funny being identical because I got to grow up with a straight version of myself and he yeah. got to grow up with a gay version of himself. And so um, we joke about that quite a lot. Did you have that conversation then after that that moment? We did. We um, I remember just, I, I couldn't sit still. So I was like walking around in circles, talking to him about mm. all of it. And um, he's very, my brother's similar to my granddad. He's a very astute he's very articulate he's very understanding and he's the sort of person you explain something to and they already know it but they're going to listen to you out of courtesy and so yeah I just got to say my piece really and he supported me and he always has and I could not be more blessed to have the brother that I do so I'm very lucky you guys are really close very close yeah I mean what was that experience when you kind of spoke earlier about the the community and obviously when you come to London, you got exposed to that. I mean, that must have been like quite eye-opening, you know, to kind of, like you say, when you're exposed to like the, the community in comparison to like obviously being in Reading. Like. Yeah, well, that was actually what I spoke about when we met at Richard's thing. It's about what I wanted to basically articulate is how amazing it is to be LGBTQ+, how amazing it is to be open and the power that comes with visibility and representation and just being unafraid and unapologetic. And so, um, yeah, I'm very lucky. So Do you find that a lot of people um, still kind of like hold it in and, and maybe hide away from that still? And, and obviously what you're doing now is obviously being like, this is who I am in hopes that obviously it'll make them feel empowered as well. I, do you know what? I think a lot of people are holding it in from more so I would say like generations before mine rather than the younger generations. And so there's a lot of sort of, again, when it comes to sort of being queer, a lot of it is internalised, unlike being like a other marginalised, like if you're like black or an ethnic minority or if you're a woman, you're very immediately visible as to what you are. Whereas you can hide being gay because no one knows you're gay, no, no one knows what a gay person looks like. But then being gay is completely intersectional because queer people are in every walk of life, in every single job, in every single area. And whether or not they want to be open with it, depending on their circumstances, is again something that is a journey for queer people to have because we have to pick, sometimes we have to choose our freedom over our safety. But that's a big price to pay for a lot of people. Yeah. Have you met people within the kind of the LGBTQ community where the parents have just not understood and it's been really hard for them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lot of it 
it's, of course, this is not me diminishing the experiences of lesbian and gay people, but a lot of my transgender friends experience a lot of transphobia from their parents. You, would you say more and, transgender than people yes, coming out as gay? Yeah. Absolutely. Coming out as gay, again, very generationally different. I'm lucky to have friends from all these different generations. Um, and so for some of them coming out to their family it was a lot harder. But then especially for sort of my generation, I'm 26, and I born in 1997. And a lot of my friends, a family, they're sort of very accepting, very open. And even if they're not initially accepting, because there is this sort of perception change that is happening in the British public with a lot of the media, like we've got sort of like Heartstopper, Sex Education, um, even mm. from the beginnings, like as like Queer as Folk, all these sort of, like basically anything Russell T Davies has done yeah. <laughs> has had a massive impact and the media impact has definitely allowed a lot of younger queer people to be themselves. Be more open and stuff. It's quite interesting when you talk about obviously people like hiding it. I mean, this isn't the same, but I used to do ballet as a kid. I used to have to, had to hide it from my, my friends in secondary school and primary school because basically as soon as I find out they'll be like oh Bali's a gay thing like why are you doing that and like it was it's just it was just mad like because I I, I I hid it for years like people in primary school knew but in secondary school I had to hide it which was just like it's sad really looking but that's it, yeah that's I mean that's really interesting because I mean David Beckham did ballet before yeah. he'd warmed up for football and so on but that's is a really good sort of description of um inadvertently of how actually a lot of homophobia and transphobia is rooted in misogyny and so it's like obviously ballet being seen as something feminine then being seen as something gay a lot of homophobia and transphobia is rooted in misogyny for those exact reasons about how cisgender men cisgender men are men who are not transgender so i'm a cisgender man you're a cisgender man What's um, sorry? yeah so if you're transgender that okay. means you're um different to the sex that you're assigned at birth okay um whereas your cisgender your gender aligns with the sex that you're assigned at birth okay um and yeah so it's how cisgender men then perceive women um it can obviously the misogyny in that is sort of leads into transphobia and homophobia because if you break down transphobia and if we talk about transphobia against transgender women so these are people who have transitioned and are women um you're making if you're making fun of them you're making fun of womanhood you're making fun of femininity you're making fun of your sister your auntie your mum, your like your grandmother you're just making fun of females and regardless of whether you think you can define what is a woman to you, if you don't have lived that experience, if you don't have that experience as a woman, then it's not up to you to define what womanhood is. And it's literally that simple. It's literally that simple when it comes to dealing with transphobia. And then when they're talking about not being man enough for trans men, a lot of that is initially because they, transphobic people can't see behind the sort they can't see behind the reality of everything they really have to like box it into but you were born as in a woman's body and all of this stuff so, so yeah it's all like obviously like single-minded Rishi Sunak saying that as well and I remember my girlfriend like telling me about it and I was honestly like shots in this day and age as well like it's tacking that whole community and obviously they say they're the, for the people but they're obviously like not like yeah I think it's very the transphobia 
um, so blatant now in politics and in media. And it's really... Um, so Rishi Sunak said at the Conservative Party conference, um, men are men and women are women and we shouldn't be bullied into believing anything else. And just that language in itself is... Um, like bullied into believing implies that this is something that is being put on people is being forced onto people who don't want it but then if you look at the statistics we know that there's according to the 2021 census about 100,000 transgender people in the UK and about 48 or thousand of them are transgender women and he was speaking about transgender women taking up spaces for cisgender women in hospital wards but it wouldn't be possible because they don't have the same reproductive organs and we also have um mixed wards anyway so it's and then they did a uh, the charity translucent reached out to 102 nhs foundations or it may have been 120 nhs foundations and there were, and they asked about people complaining about sharing spaces with transgender women, and there were absolutely zero responses, zero cases, no evidence of anyone ever complaining about sharing a space with a trans woman. And so it just goes to show that this is a fabricated lie to instill panic and instill this transphobic rhetoric that they're really pushing at the moment. But a lot of it is tied down to the fact that the Tory party have made some horrendously bad decisions, have plunged us into some of the worst living conditions the UK has ever had. Yeah. And so they're going to scapegoat through trans people and try and get the votes of drivers and stuff like that. It's even. awful, isn't it? Are they trying to like, use the media against like transgender women and then, you know, trying to get more votes? It's just, like, it's, just it's horrendous. It's yeah. really horrendous because... It starts with trans people because they're the most marginalised and then it will go on to gay people and then it will go further and further. If you look in Italy, um, they've got a very right-wing political party in charge at the moment and lesbian mothers who are on the birth certificate but not technically the biological mother of their child have now had their names taken off birth certificates and this is Italy in 2023 mm, and so it and that started with creating a moral panic around queer people it's just toxic in it and it's just like <laughs> it just gets worse and worse yeah it does and that's why we need to represent that's why we need to be vocal about it because if you can show the good parts of the being queer if you can talk about self-love if you can find your self-worth if you can be out if you can be open and be queer and be lgbtq plus however you're comfortable with identifying there's a massive power in just literally being open with it i think all coming together and having a voice and like i mean all the within the work you're doing like the activists and everything I'd love to kind of touch upon, obviously, your experience, obviously, being a firefighter. Where did that passion come from? Was it from a young age? It was like, I'm going to be a firefighter. So I didn't always want to be a firefighter. Just like a lot of little boys, I love the fire service and I love being in fire engines and blue yeah. lights and so on and so forth. But no, actually, I um, used to be very overweight. And so I started running. And then one day there was a garden center that used to run past every day and the banner popped up saying, recruiting part-time firefighters now. 
And so I looked into this and it was the local retain station uh, about five minutes if that down my road and they were recruiting for firefighters. So I set the firefighter fitness test as my health goal, really, to prove to myself that I am capable. And so I carried on running, carried on training and I went to the have a go day and then I passed the test and I was really happy and they were like, okay, go and do the real thing. It's in a month. And... I had just come back from traveling. I had dropped out of college. I had no qualifications. And I just thought, you know what? <laughs> Why not? What's the worst thing that can happen? So then I, before I knew it, I found myself as a um, retained firefighter in Berkshire. Had the most amazing year there. And then my station closed down because it was so quiet. <laughs> How was like the training in the lead up to that? Was that that was that quite hard? It was good. Um, you, it was... Um, it was two weeks of training and for me my training school experience is very much why I've fallen in love with my job and my vocation my career whatever you want to call it because um my mum entered end-of-life care she entered palliative care in the last week of my training and she wanted me to stick with it she wanted me to stay through and so I would spend my days up at training, then I'd go back to the hospital and um, spend time with her and so on and so forth. And then um, it got to the penultimate day of training school and we got told by the hospital that they didn't think she was going to make it through the night. So I had to leave training school and I remember getting to the hospital and getting a phone call while still with my mum. And it was from the officer in charge of the training school. And he said, James, I'm obviously so sorry about your circumstances. um, But if there's anything that you should know right now is that you've managed to pass through training school and we've got you and you're going to be a retained firefighter in Berkshire. And so being able to tell my mum that before um, she passed was really amazing, actually, because it's like it's shaped a lot of my future now. Um, what did she say? I just, she couldn't say much, but she smiled and um, <laughs> winked at me. So, um, yeah, it was really lovely. Um, and then a few more days later, my mum was still, she was still alive. And so um, I went to my first ever training session <laughs> and I was on, I was just on the fire ground and then I got a tap on my shoulder and I had to go through the fire station. And I was in a full firefighting uniform. And even though it's clean uniform, you're never meant to ever be in a fire stations with your uniform on because of contamination issues. And it's only for once in a blooming situation. So I knew that obviously there was some important news. And I saw my mum's best friend and my best friend. And they were um, both in the office at um, Mainhead Fire Station. And yeah, that's when I got told that my mum had passed away. And so I left training. I went straight to the hospital. I was with my family and my sort of when I first joined the fire service to go through so much love and to go through so much self-worth and so much determination through training school to then losing my mum on my first official day at work, it formed this... um, relationship with the fire service that's incredibly personal to me because the weeks falling out from all of that the love that I experienced from my colleagues and um, from people who I didn't even know in work um, 
all were there supporting me and word travels fast in a small industry like the fire service and I got a lot of love from a lot of people and I wouldn't have had the structure, I wouldn't have had the self-worth and I wouldn't have had the community around me initially if I wasn't in the fire service after my mum passed away do and th- so. I was going to ask you if, if you wasn't in the fire service during that time when your mum passed away, do you think that time would have been a lot harder to kind of absolutely, go through? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I was very lucky because it's obviously uniform service and so it's very regimented. You have to be the best version of yourself as best you can, obviously, no, no expecting you to be perfect the whole time. Um, and so it's with that, with that knowing that I had this responsibility, knowing I was on call, knowing that I couldn't make irrational decisions, knowing that I had responsibility for people, that was something that definitely sort of kept my head on my shoulders. And then obviously like she was the sort of only parental figure I had in my life, um, especially my adult life. Um, With that being taken away, suddenly I'm around a lot of people who are still role models and still role models to me. So again, being able to work with people who are very self-assured and understanding was, yeah, I was very lucky. I've, I've got a lot, I owe a lot to my first ever station, so. You still stay in touch with them? Yeah, yeah we do. I mean, yeah. it's been years now. I've been, I transferred, um, I say I transferred. I you didn't. To, I, is, um, it, you're at the, is it the London? Yeah, I got a job in London Fire Brigade, um, a whole time firefighter now. And I'm based in the city of London. Mm. So I went from the quietest, smallest retained station in Berkshire yeah. to the second. Big bad world of London. <laughs> like, yeah. To literally the big smoke as they yeah. call it. <laughs> um, and complete, would you say it was like chalk and cheese, completely different? Absolutely. Yeah. It was like going from being in the scouts or something. I mean, yeah. yes, we had fires. Yeah, we could cover whole time shifts. And But I had more jobs in my second day at work. My first day I had no jobs. Yeah. Um, I had more jobs in my second day at work than I probably had in a couple of months being retained mm. in uh, Berkshire. And so... Um, yeah, again, that's just adding to the sort of juxtapositions yeah. of my life is that I went from somewhere. Could you talk to... a lot about the juxtapositions? You know, on your Instagram, from like being gay could be super masculine to being like you've mentioned like quite quite queer. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's two questions there. Is queer offensive? Obviously, like leading up to this podcast, I like googled it, like because obviously you mentioned it a lot in your posts. Yeah. I was like, as a straight person, can I say the word queer? And there's quite mixed kind of reactions to that. And then the second question I wanted to ask is like this kind of juxtaposition you've spoke kind of very openly about. Yeah, so um, regarding using the like queer language and saying queer, I mean, it's a word that's been reclaimed by LGBTQ plus people um, in order to, I think it's less of a mouthful than um, saying LGBTQ plus, but it's more of a blanket term. So it's like, labels there's a really interesting article that i read and it said labels are descriptive not prescriptive so a label that we use for ourselves is just something out of comfort so you can still define your sexuality as straight and have a sexual attraction towards men if you're not being homophobic that is completely valid because you're still comfortable within your sexuality Mm. it's just the label that you use to be comfortable, just like I would use queer or I would use gay because I'm comfortable in defining myself as that. But I know that 
in the grand scheme of things, if I might not be with boys forever, I might not be with girls ever, but it's, and it's like bisexuality is like a label people give to themselves because they identify as bisexual, but they may never have straight sex. They may never have gay sex, um, but it doesn't invalidate the label that they want to give to themselves. And so then that's where queer comes into it because queer covers pansexuality, asexuality, bisexuality, trans people, cis people, it just covers. See, I didn't know that. So it covers like a whole range, yeah. And so that's why you have nights, and especially in East London, shout out Dalston Superstore, they'll have like... I think I've been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's been there, yeah. They'll have like queer nights and there's a really powerful community behind, behind it. And it's different to like a gay night which would be like roast or something where it's an all men's event in London where it's very open. It's a very safe space. It's a very sort of, it's curated by queer people for queer people to celebrate queerness because a lot of our rights that we have as gay, as I have as a gay man, as a queer person are down to the most marginalized within the LGBTQ plus community because the most marginalized people have had to fight the most to have their voice heard, have their voice heard, and yet their voices are still heard the least. And so we, as a cis gay man, I owe a lot to trans people. I owe a lot to queer people because they're the ones who have fought in order to but grant yeah. us exactly these permissions, these club nights, the being able to yeah. walk down certain parts and hold my boyfriend's hand and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, it's... It's much. It's a much more inclusive community than just gay. And so, I was going to ask, like, how is it like dating in London? Because um, <laughs> I know, I know, obviously, there's like the apps like Grinder, but I just thought, like, I remember watching right. So I remember watching this like BBC show, and he met someone on Grinder, um, and it was really like quite graphic scene, and he ended up like getting like. Like was rape, it I like May Destroy You? I yeah. May Destroy You. Yeah. yeah. And he yeah. ended up like getting raped and then obviously he went to the police and they didn't believe him because he was gay and it was it was awful. I mean, is it as dangerous as, as be, it's made be, out to be? Yeah. I um, think that's the thing. With dating, with being gay and with the internet, there is so much available and there's so much access that you really have to know and be sure of yourself know what you want mm. um there's grinder is a very dark place but also can be a very great place i've met some people and had amazing times and i've uh, opened doors and i've been like nope i've got to go straight away this isn't a space that i can be in and yes. I, I think really a lot of when it comes to dating, you really have to go with your instincts. You have to go with your heart and you have to go with your gut. You can't go with your head because that's not what dating's about. Um, you, if your gut is telling you not to be there, if your heart's telling you you're in the wrong place, just don't do it. Just yeah, don't oh, go yeah. there. Um, I think a lot of, but then a lot of gay men, well, a lot of queer people, but a lot of gay men have to date online because what is there when we're out and about in the clubs? Like even now, like gay clubs are becoming a lot more mainstream. I've gone up to guys before and be like, hey, I would love to have your number or whatever. And they'd be like, oh, sorry, I'm here with my girlfriend. Or, oh, sorry, I'm not gay. And it's like, it's completely fine. Yeah. But 
you can't tell what a gay person looks like. Yeah. So you have to use the internet. And so I use, I'm single at the moment. And I- Did you hear about what happened in the, the bar in Clapham? Yes, it, um, it was two Did people get stabbed? stabbed outside a, a gay bar in Clapham outside the Because I've been there, two brewers. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that was a really harrowing few days. There's been a massive string of hate crimes in um, South London, particularly around the Brixton Clapham area. Even after Black Pride, there were two, there was a gay couple who were on their way to an after party and they were both beaten up at a bus stop and bloodied and bruised and yeah I think it's very hard because the gay community is very the queer community is a very strong community and so we don't let things like this get to us but the fact that we are deliberately targeted we are stabbed for simply being outside a bar in one of the like in one of the gayest areas Clapham's very queer area of London to sort of experience those sort of deliberate hate crimes is, is very scary because you realize how fragile it all is how's that experience obviously being obviously being a firefighter have you, have you experienced like homophobia because i know you did a post where you did the kind of the pride show and obviously the backlash of the comments on that was awful right? so a few years ago um we london fire brigade were approached Sorry, I'm going to start again. A few years ago, the fire service that I worked for were approached by this um, queer fashion designer called Patrick McDowell. And his dad was a firefighter and he is an incredibly talented queer sustainable fashion designer. And he wanted to do a show. He wanted to do some photos um, collaborating with this photographer called Lou Jasmine, where they basically like queered up some firefighters got us in some very flamboyant outfits and this was for positive lgbtq plus representation i loved the experience i was um hanging out the side of a fire station in houston with this huge flowing yellow gown kp thing on um i've seen the pictures it was amazing (laughs) with all my workwear on underneath so um it was really really good um but then I remember posting it online and trolls, internet trolls um, who found the Fire Brigade's Instagram where it was also posted, then found my Instagram and I was, I received a barrage of hate. Um, A lot of people were saying I was called an embarrassment to the fire service. I was told that I need to kill myself. I was told that... um, I was like the West had gone soft and that I was a like that was basically said all these horrible things about me about this one photo of me and other LGBTQ plus firefighters just doing some positive activism there was so much hate towards it and it was really perplexing as to why it was received in such a manner because we're such a minority within the fire service so we're not taking up loads of space we're not changing anything huge in a sense of just doing this photo shoot it's just I think a lot of people have a narrative around what they want the box of a firefighter to fit into and the second you step outside the box whether you're stepping outside the box and you're with someone who's also in the fire service and has created this mindset of what they think a firefighter should be it's like they've got their own kind of stereotype of what a firefighter should be it should be this that and the other when in reality, like, 
doesn't matter like where you come from or what background no or, not at yeah. all i mean i can still go into fires i can still sort of cut people out of cars and do everything a firefighter should do and and honestly i can do it well as well and so for them people to sort of like comment on it and talk about how sexuality comes into it it's very interesting because for me of course my queerness is a big like i'm very proud of it it defines a lot of who i am but when it comes to work it doesn't shape how effectively you can do the physical parts of the job it actually can help in a sense of being able to engage with communities yeah. and dealing with members of the public who may be lgbtq plus like having that understanding is really really good just like we have bilingual firefighters who can speak with people in london who obviously don't speak english as well and yeah it's um it's just it's just a shame it's just a shame that people can't look beyond the idea of what they think a firefighter should be and actually think about how having a diverse fire service could actually be a benefit to everyone how many people have you met within kind of the fire brigade who have also openly said they're gay? So I've been a firefighter now in London for three years and I have met, sorry, four years now, and I've met three other openly gay male firefighters. That's mad, isn't it? Like, it's yeah. crazy. We have about five and a half thousand men working in London fire brigades and about six, six just over 6,000 employees um and so for me to be not only at a very busy station so meeting other firefighters a lot but then also heavily involved in lots of lgbtq plus stuff within the fire service to me to have only met three other gay male firefighters i was blown away i was really blown away when i first joined because i didn't think that it was a big deal i didn't think that being an openly gay man in the fire service. How did you feel obviously moving to London, obviously from Reading? Was there any nerves there about obviously what the people are going to be like when you join? Like I was saying, it's like because I didn't think it was a big deal. I didn't yeah. really think of it as like, oh, I'm going to drop. This shouldn't be an issue, yeah. I, exactly, I didn't think yeah. it'd be an issue. I didn't think it would be it anything. It should be an issue as well. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 mad that like, how that thought would come, like, you know what I mean? Like, because I was very lucky, obviously, with my upbringing, being liberal, my brother, my friends, and so on. It was like, I was, I was very confident in myself. And I still am. But I went into the job and it was like, people were genuinely interested. And it was like being 18 again and coming yeah. out of school again. And everyone's like, oh, well, what about this? And what about that? And yeah. so on. And I was just like, I was, first I was amazed because I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> this is happening. But second, I was also like, but there is so many men in this job. There wow. is so many men and we slide down poles. Like, it's pretty gay. <laughs> um, why, 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 there, why is there no queer representation here? Why is yeah. there no LGBTQ plus representation? And so um, there's a lot of lesbians. Was that off your own back, would you say, in terms of like, obviously you talks now about it within kind of fire service um, because there's not that many gay men in the fire service and really not that many queer people um i've just found myself in a situation of sort of being in the right place at the right time because if it wasn't me who was gonna speak up and who was gonna sort of like help change things i do think that it would have been somebody else um 
there's Firefighters are incredibly powerful people. I've, every single one of my colleagues who I've ever met, there's always something about them. And so I just happened to be the one who rocked up one day and um, is suddenly hanging off the side of a fire engine in this yellow thing and doing all these talks and stuff because it's a conversation that needs to be had. It's a fire service, it's a humanitarian service. We're here to provide for people for London and it's obviously the most diverse city that we have in this country and so for it to then not represent the people that it serves it was very interesting, interesting. because that how was that experience for you obviously being in the five gate obviously you mentioned you did the the whole kind of the catwalk um, how was that response obviously kind of within the fire brigade when they yeah. saw it? So it was a photo shoot, not a catwalk because oh, if right. I did a catwalk, <laughs> I would 100% be falling over. You look like a catwalk from my side. So the response from that was very interesting. Lots of it was incredibly positive. Obviously we spoke about the negatives online um, and actually a lot of my colleagues were very supportive of it. Um, but then this sort of leads into an interesting story actually. I remember there was a guy at my station who's no longer there. And he was like, oh, James, James, look, um, I saw the photo shoot that you did. I was stood by at the station where it was displayed and I took a photo um, with the photo of you. And so he gets up his phone to go and show me the um, photo that he took and he scrolls up through his um, group chat and um, to show me the photo, forgetting that, he was also going to show me all the replies and the replies were just them laughing at me and making fun of me. And that was really hard for me to sort of, it was hard for me to take on because these are people who are so lovely to my face and so kind. And I had lots of good things to say about all of them. And then to see the, entire watch making fun of me was very heartbreaking because it just made me sort of question a lot of why am I doing all of this representation? Why am I putting myself out there? Why am I doing this if the reception from my colleagues is going to be one to make fun of me, one to sort of make fun of it? But then I sort of came to the conclusion actually, well, this is exactly why I'm doing it. As um, I'm not, I don't believe that if you are homophobic, if you are transphobic, and you've never been experienced or exposed to queer people, or trans people, you can't, you can't really be like. Of course, you can be disciplined for it, and of course, we should all have our initiative to know and know better and do better. But without that experience, without that exposure, of course you're going to hold these prejudices. Of course you're going to hold these sort of presumptions about queer people and LGBTQ plus people. And so, again, it ties into me feeling sorry for them. But that just made me think, okay, there's just more education that needs to be done here mm. because the so reception twisting it on its head. And I mean, it must be like a it's like a backstab, isn't it? You know, like saying one thing to someone's face and then obviously the reaction obviously being different on the opposite side of the coin. Absolutely. And that's the thing. A lot of it, for me, it wasn't funny. For me, it was really, really upsetting. I remember going home from work because it was just at a change of watch and I was going home and I remember going home and 
bursting into tears in my bedroom because I was new to the fire service at that point as well. There's not a lot that you can, well, I felt at the time, if I look back at it, I would have said something, but I felt at the time I couldn't say anything because if I was it happened new to now, it. do you think you would have said something? I would, I absolutely would have because I was under the impression, just like a lot of people are, that if you say something wrong, your job is in jeopardy, your job is in understand, like you could lose that. And I didn't want to come into a fire station being new and then potentially jeopardize people's jobs. Cause these are people who've been in a job for like 25, 30 years. And then to then be fired, lose your pension and all of that, that has a deeper hurt, which sounds stupid. I'm not defending the homophobia than sitting someone down and educating them as to why they are wrong so they can then change their perception on things. Because these are still lovely people. These are people I've shared genuine good times with. And so for that to then be taken away because they're making fun of something they can't comprehend, as much as it's on them to know better, it's also on the institution, it's on the fire service, it's on the job to educate them because these are people who they work with and through the fire service doing something like this photo shoot actually in the grand scheme of things they are and they are doing positive representation and they are changing the scale of things and it's going to take a long time yeah. just like it all does just like with um any sort of rights movement it's going to take a long long time but it's these small things these photo shoots these speeches this visibility and representation that will eventually lead to change. Yeah. Change, exactly. So there's a recent cultural review on the BBC about the fire service. Have you seen like, any kind of changes since that kind of came out? Yeah, so the cultural review was organised in-house, like inside the fire service. Um, and then, yeah, they spoke about it on, on the news as well, but especially on the BBC talking about... Um, issues regarding homophobia and transphobia and misogyny and racism and so on within the fire service. And so they've been very proactive in order to try and change things, or at least from what I've been able to experience as a queer person. What was the main thing um, in the review which kind of come out of so it? So a lot of um, the stuff in the review um, spoke about actually how female firefighters were treated um, and then a lot actually to do with racism. And this is spanning 20 years worth of experience in the fire service, not just recent times. Um, and they actually, they didn't touch on homophobia that much, um, even though they've since done a staff survey talking about how um, actually, like, if you're queer or if you're under that spectrum, there are going to be certain there's going to be a certain level of uncomfortability that you have in the fire service. Um, and I think it's actually in itself, it was a bit sort of um, being LGBT can be so overlooked because there's firstly, there's so few of us. It's um, less than 2% already. Yeah. And it's, um, there's so few of us. And so they think it's not a problem, but then actually because there are so few of us, that in itself is a big problem. Yeah. And it is, also harder for LGBT people who work in a job to find that sense of community when it comes to bonding with people over their orientation and gender and sexuality. And so they're pushing in the fire service for 
there to be much more open conversations when it comes to um, um, EDI, which is um, equality, diversity, inclusion. For anything that sort of comes under any sort of EDIs and stuff like that. And they held a conference at the University of London called LFB Live, where they spoke about, um, they got people who are ESG leads. So I'm also the lead for the LG, the co-chair for the LGBTQ plus network for London Fire Brigade. For the, sorry, I'm the co-chair for the LGBTQ plus network. And um, I got to speak to hundreds of people about my experiences. How was that experience um, going on stage in front of other people? <laughs> I found it pretty good. I was quite relaxed. Yeah. Um, I love public speaking. It's something I want to do a lot more of as I sort of step into all of was it. Was this before the, the Richard Green? Yes, yeah. it was. Um, oh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't actually, no, it wasn't. It was after the Richard Green experience. Did you actually change your talk after that? Yes, I, I changed a few bits of it. Um, but the advice that I was given was always, he, he his advice to me was just go with your heart. And so I just had to sort of think about a lot of what I said. And there was a point where I just lost myself on the page that I was reading from. And so then I just sort of scrapped it and then just spoke from where I am. And so... What was that? Sorry, I would love to like, you know, in the talk, what was kind of that bit where you talked from the heart? What was that experience like? Um... I think when I was speaking from the heart, I was just talking as if every single person in the room, I was just having a one-on-one conversation with them like this. And just really making sure that the circumstances were humanized, that LGBTQ plus people are represented humanely and with dignity, with love and with respect. And to be able to articulate that is something that I was really happy with the response I got was phenomenal and so then it's like I've gone over to other fire stations when I've done out duties or standbys or whatever and um they said oh I recognize you from this thing that was really amazing that was really interesting and there's been so many positive that must be amazing feeling as well you know what I mean like like you say there's only less than two percent um of like LGBTQ TQ, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know it's going to happen at one point in the podcast, so I'm going like, to miss a letter out. Uh, yeah. Yeah, don't shame me for it. We either. all get it wrong. Yeah. We're such a mouthful. What's, is it a shortcut? Is it, do you always say all the, like... Yeah, you do. That's yeah. why That's why I, I like using the word queer because it covers it all. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, then from a sort of LGBTQ plus perspective, yeah, yeah it's been... it's quite interesting because I, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying queer. Yeah. But yeah, from... It should be, yeah. like, it It really depends. Like, as long as you're comfortable in what you're saying, like, I'm not going to force you it's to... It's not, like, an offensive exactly. way, like, if I yeah. say it kind of thing. Like, yeah. Everything... I think it's because I've not really said it before. Yeah. I don't think I've ever really said it. It's just I mean? everything like, yeah. like this just depends on context. It yeah. literally just depends on context. And we're here talking about queer people positively mm. and Amazing. the power yeah. and importance that queer people have had on our lives and my life and in the fire service. And so, um, yeah, it's um, it's just sort of however you want to say it, really. Yeah. I mean, how was that experience, obviously? I mean, it must be amazing, obviously, because they've probably, like you say, like, the... the 
you're like one of the very few kind of gay firefighters. So it must be incredible that you having that opportunity to kind of share your story and for them to kind of understand what you've been through and why you're here. Yeah, for, I mean, hopefully not for much longer. <laughs> but yeah, being one of the few sort of openly gay firefighters and being able to talk about it, it is, it's, um, in a way, it's a privilege because, I mean, despite the negative experiences I have had, the experience of being gay and being in a fire service is overwhelmingly positive. Um, 99.9% of our, my colleagues are lovely, supportive, open-minded. I mean, all the positive adjectives. It's an incredibly, like, I'm incredibly blessed to be in fire. get quite close as well under, like, these, like, really stressful kind of circumstances. Yeah, it's very different to your nine-to-five job, you could say. Yeah, absolutely. You do. It's... um a there's like an unspoken bond between anyone who's a firefighter anyway but then with your colleagues with your watch so like the people you work with immediately on your tour um because you go into such stressful situations with each other you're sat on the back of an appliance at like three in the morning or you're doing whatever you just get to know people you spend more time with them than you do your family or your housemates or whatever and so um yeah, there's no choice but to support each other and love each other and look out for each other. Because if we can't do that, then how can we do that for the people that we're responsible for okay, in an emergency yeah. situation? So it's very good. I wanted to ask you a question about being at kind of like the forefront and the heat. I mean, it must do. You, is it really intense? Like when you're up against it. <laughs> I mean, I just couldn't imagine it. So like, this reason I'm asking it, I'm just like, yeah. a lot of people think that when we go and fight fires, it's these huge raging infernos. But a lot of the time, um, it's compartments that are just completely full of smoke. And so a lot of it, you're very blind for what you're doing. And um, I remember my first ever proper fire was on my second ever night shift. And we had a 15 pump basement fire in a car park and all these cars kept going on a light and it was on our station ground and we were the first crew there. And I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> this, this, this is my job. <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we made our way down the stairs. Um, you open the door where you could see, like, you know, you have those doors with like the, like the glass panel in them, like yeah. the office doors. So that was leading into the car park. And so you could see all this smoke like rolling behind it. Oh my God. And I was thinking like, I really, I'm about to go into this room. <laughs> <laughs> am I crazy? Like, yeah, what am I um, doing? But because it was my first job as well, I had to prove myself then. Mm. And I had to be like, okay, I've got this. I know I've got this. Mm. And I remember I was with, um, like with the leading firefighter on, on my watch and he's just an absolute everyone on my station is absolutely amazing but he's the sort of person that if you go into a fire with him you know you're in safe hands you know he knows everything and more mm. and so there was that original initial comfortability and he put me on a branch which um so i was holding a hose um which again really reinstilled my confidence because he believed in me um, and then I remember with the thermal imaging camera, you could see the cars that were alight opening up the branch. And then you just hear this like piercing, like screeching noise of all this metal, like rapidly cooling, all of this smoke, like coming into your face and oh everything like that. And I remember looking back at it afterwards, we went back to the site a couple of days later and the whole door and the whole wall had all charred and all burnt. It was all black and 
there were these really lovely cars like Mercedes and Lexus and BMWs and Porsches just destroyed. And I was like, it was really amazing because not only did we obviously help save that fire, the other crews did mass evacuation because the ventilation system in that building failed. And I really, when we arrived, it was like people on their balconies shouting for help. And then after however long the fire was out, the crews had rescued multiple people. There was a massive, like, you, I, I went in and it was just like chaos. And you come out and there's like cameras in your face, ITV News were recording, people doing interviews. And besides all of that and all the drama and all of that, everything that went on, everyone was just there for each other. And that's when I knew that I was going to love this whole time job. I knew I was going to love it. So, yeah. It's really, really amazing, like having that kind of like purpose as well, like helping people. And like like you say, it's very community driven. And it's just like anyone who works in a public service. Um, It's incredibly rewarding being queer. On top of that, you feel empowered. Um, You feel like you can are able to give back. And so that's rewarding in itself. There's so many disciplines inside this job rather than just fighting fires where you feel a lot of self-worth, you feel a lot of value and just having the right colleagues and the right people mm. to uplift us and keep it going is I'll, why I'm a firm believer in. I'd love to talk yeah. about the the Pride Week as well. <laughs> I mean, you organise that. I mean, that was incredible. I mean, what was kind of the response to that and like the people coming to the event? Like? So I helped organise Pride at um, Soho Fire Station and... That was really amazing because I got to invite one of my friends down who is a I can't believe I missed it. I remember messaging you. Is it still going on? <laughs> one of my friends, Harry, performed and they are a incredible DJ. Um, they're an advocate for so many more things. Like, again, a big inspiration of mine is um, Queer House Party, um, like Tali Quart and Harry Gay, like that like those people have really impacted me on my journey of like queerness and understanding everything LGBTQ plus in London. And it's all through my best friend who is a drag queen um, called Baby, (laughs) who has absolutely teared up from RuPaul's Drag Race and did amazingly and introduced me to this whole amazing queer world of london and introduce so, me i've always said i want a rupaul yeah. like drag race like on the on the podcast at some point i you will know, i'll yeah. get them involved <laughs> you have to pay them though yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but no it's and so through that being able to bring that and that sort of side of london yeah. into a space that is so typically reserved for just well being a fire station to then have its doors open we did an exhibition that um i helped organize along with this other firefighter called charlotte who is just again another amazing powerful like firefighter and they're non-binary and just like uh, just I've, I've got so many good things to say about them um and we did um portraits of lgbtq plus firefighters and allies and and exhibited it in Soho Fire Station and we had a statement from one of our trans firefighters and it's just like having being there on the day and seeing the fire station absolutely ram-packed um with people dancing in the bay with all the people when I saw the concert then seeing the exhibition seeing all the stalls that were there the queue for outreach was going all the way down Shaftesbury Avenue I'd never seen 
anything like it. And the people working at Outreach had said that too. And so that probably was one of the most um, rewarding days I'd ever had at work because I got to not only have my friends involved and like love like being able to like love it but the fact that the fire service is on the right side of history Mm. when it comes to dealing with these issues and to representing this community that's one of my biggest prides when it comes to it because they're going to be able to look back in years to come and be like we helped this happen we enabled queer liberation to some extent through just being good people and yeah, the firefighters at Soho Fire Station are amazing. And it's just like, it's a, yeah, it was a really great time. It was really lovely. No, I mean, it looks incredible from, yeah. I mean, I wish I was there in person when I saw oh, it. But yeah, next year. But honestly, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing to kind of hear that. Obviously, your kind of whole journey, um, being a firefighter and everything you, like, you've been through, but also all the, the positives as well. And I mean, what would you say to someone out there who's thinking of joining it? I think... If you're queer or if you're LGBTQ plus and you want to join the fire service, just literally just apply. If you have that, if it's calling you, if it's inside of you, if you're if this job is something that you believe you can do, that's already half of it. Anyone can do the training. Anyone, unfortunately, but it's the reality of it is replaceable. But then if your soul is in it, if your spirit is in it, and you know that you can do it to make the world a better place you can make the fire service a better place and make yourself a better person just go for it because it is so much fun there's just the love for your colleagues that you can't even describe and I feel very lucky to have my job and to be able to wake up every day knowing that I'm gonna go and do something that I love no paycheck can give you that feeling and Mm. so yeah just go for it you'll be fine I think I'm going to end it on that note because honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure, James, to have you on the podcast and have me over at your flat as well to kind of share your story. If anyone wants to give you a follow and kind of follow your journey, would you like to share your kind of social handles? Yeah, so my Instagram is rogers underscore underscore James um, and it's R-O-D-G-E-R-S because that's how you spell it from up north. Up north, yeah. (laughs) Big up Liverpool. Um, And yeah, that's about the only social media that I use really. So um yeah, have a look at me there. Amazing. Thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. Cool. Thank you very Thank much. You.